Hello, and welcome back for another exciting and amazing episode with the Nailed It Ortho team. We are back again today. Hey, guys, my name is Dr. Jay Fitz, and I also have with me Ooh, Dr. Wendell Cole. There we go. So we're the the dynamic duo that makes this this uh, this great machine work, guys. Oh, we, yeah. We have, <laughs> we have another one. Uh, I think another awesome show for you guys. This one is going to be um this is going to be great for like the junior residents and the the med students who are about to do those rotations and things. I, I I say that you need to listen to this episode so that you can be Definitely. better. Yeah, absolutely. And be better prepared out there. So uh, I'm going to let Cody do the introduction here. And yeah, you know, this is a this is definitely a great episode. One of our my chief residents here, actually, um, Dr. Uh, Donovan Johnson um, is actually doing this episode. And we're just talking about, you know, tips when you're on call, when you're by yourself, you know, or even if you, you know, your first time, how you can uh, how you can reduce things, um, how you can go about looking at things. And, uh, you know, this is a great episode. You know, Dr. Johnson, stand up guy is actually one of the one of the reasons I actually chose this residency program where I'm at now is one of my chiefs. He re- he went to Georgetown University for med school, Tulane for residency, and he matched in the, his uh his top choice for fellowship over at Vail and doing sports. So, um, yeah, I have no doubt in my mind he's he's gonna be he's already a great surgeon. Uh, he's gonna have a great career ahead of him. And um, you know, just without further ado, you all listen to this episode of my chief, Doctor uh, Donovan uh, Johnson, otherwise known as DJ. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson, or should I say Chief Johnson, or however you want me to call you, man. Welcome to the program. Not welcome to the program. Welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you on and, and coming and speaking uh, today, man. Hopefully we can help a lot of people out, man. So welcome. Well, no worries. Thank you for having me. And I um, look forward to sharing some things to the young, inspiring orthopedists and young orthopedists as well. Um, call me DJ, you know, man, I, <laughs> Dr. Johnson stuff sounds pretty cool, but you know, I'm a, you know, I'm just a normal guy trying to get through like everybody else and, you know, help people in the process. So, so DJ is good. All right. All right. Say no more, DJ. Like- About to be chief, man. Uh, how, how's it feel? Does it feel good? Um, it it, it comes with his his own battles. I put it like that. Um, always it's good to you know that I'm um, getting closer toward the end and being out on my own and you know practicing surgeon. Uh, but equally so, as you know, that's nerve wracking as well because I'm going to be by myself. I won't have a chief or a staff in front of it. It's just going to be me. So, right. um, this stage is 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 it's interesting because, you know, you still try to develop your craft and get better every day. And you have to do it, you know, when you're out on your own as well. Um, but also as well, I've got, you know, I'm going to have residents below me who look up to me and I'm going to be the one, you know, leading the ship and leading the team. And that comes with a lot of responsibility as well, you know. Um, so it's the good and bad, you know, it's good part that, you know, I'm, I'm getting close to the end. And, you know, this has been a long road, long journey. But equally so is, is, you know, we have to you know, still hold down the, the fort and and be able to lead and lead by example and lead by, uh, I guess, mentorship and uh, leadership as well. So it comes with its own pluses and minus. So awesome. um, I to, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that has to be a good feeling to to know you, you know, you 
progress through the program and you know you, you're at that point where it is time to to go out on your own but on that on that subject so we always start off with a few questions so that's good we, we're already getting into mm-hmm. it so what what specialty did you choose and, and why did you choose it uh great question um actually you know it was a struggle for me to actually pick a specialty um I always knew I wanted to do orthopedics you know in college and always wanted to do uh, sports medicine when I I uh, started uh, residency, but, you know, going through residency and spending these, you know, three and a half, four years here now, you know, you get exposed to so much in such a little bit of time. You know, you do trauma, you do spine, you do shoulder elbow, you do sports. And, you know, I kind of found myself kind of liking everything. And that, what made, made it tough for me is to find a skill, uh, which I can, you know, see a diverse patient group, which is young and old and, you know, athlete versus, you know, the pops that go out and play golf every now and then to, you know, taking care of high energy, you know, trauma to athletes and all those things. And, you know, I settled on sports medicine because it's probably the more diverse one of all of them. Um, you know, it, it's more of a, a I can put a, like a, I don't say private practice skill, but, you know, you, you can kind of pick and choose and see what you want. And as your trauma, you know, is whatever comes through the door. Um, and, and the fields I kind of <laughs> decided to pick between was like trauma versus sports. I was on a spine kick for a while, but I think sports, kind of my subtle home um in that field based on those things so um actively right now I'm, I'm applying to sports fellowships and it's been an interesting process a little bit different for residency is not as intense um you know um and so it, it's good to you know be exposed to you know different places different programs they all kind of do stuff similarly but they all do stuff different um and so that's kind of what i'm gonna you know just dedicate my my life to initially is um sports medicine so i like it okay yeah i can see i i definitely understand it has to be uh you know a pretty tough choice to finally have to narrow it down and pick whatever you're going to go into for you know for the long term uh mm-hmm. so yeah i i definitely can see it taking some time to, to kind of narrow narrow that down but on that same same uh same type of train of thought i guess what would you say is your favorite case to do uh, whether it's sports or whether it's trauma, whatever it might be, which, which one do you think? Well, <laughs> I mean, it depends on kind of where you are. I mean, I'm sure like, um, I guess entering the PGY2, just getting in an operating room is a good time, you know, and it get your hands dirty and do some cases. You know, early on, I, I really enjoyed the, you know, the bread and butter trauma, like, you know, femur fracture coming in and putting a nail down or tibia fracture, you know, someone coming in and putting an intramural device you can actually get people up and walk on the same day. So that stuff is pretty cool, you know. Now, the more senior resident, you know, you've done enough of those, you've done a lot of those. So we are at the point where, um, um, you know, more complex stuff are pretty interesting. So, you know, like multi-ligament knee surgery to me is, uh, is pretty cool, in which we can uh, reconstruct multiple ligaments from an injury and, you know, again, have someone back to hopefully doing their, their normal activities and, you know, given a given time that they have to rehab. So those are pretty good cases. I like complex shoulder stuff, like shoulder replacement, revision surgery. I like the rotator cuff surgeries. Um, even in other fields, I like, you know, total knee replacement, total hip replacements, and also um, some of the bread and butter, like spine cases, um, like a single or two-level um, cervical fusion or, you know, lumbar discectomy and those things. So it's kind of, you know, every field in terms of orthopedics is different, and, you know, the cases are different as well. Um, but for me, like I like the little tedious ones that takes your time to to get through them, and always got to be perfect. You know what I mean? I try to be perfect. So, 
Right. I totally understand that. I totally get it. And, you know, the last question here we want to ask you, I mean, I, yeah, this last question here. Um, so is there any, you know, you, you're coming upon your cheap year. Is there any advice that you would give yourself as an intern kind of looking back at it now? Um, it's a great question. Uh, that's cool. Um, looking back, I guess, I'll, you know, you always can do more. You always can read more and you always can, I guess, educate yourself on your craft. And, and, and again, we're going to be doing this for our long lives and, you know, and, you know, you always can get better at it. So looking back, I think if I can talk to young DJ and he was an intern running around, not knowing what to do is to, you know, uh, study more, even though you study a lot, you always can do a little bit more. You know, you always can take 15 minutes in the morning or maybe 30 more minutes at night just to read up on stuff only because, you know, things in orthopedic change. Um, you know, like I can't tell everyone, you know, if you're doing what, you know, what was in the literature 10, 15 years ago, that may not be the standard chair now, you know, so you always have to, to be on top of everything and kind of know what's out there. It means, you know, it's all set of done. You got to do what's best for your patients, you know, and, and, and if it's, doing the most up-to-date stuff or knowing the most up-to-date stuff, um, you know, to me, that that would give you uh, the best, I guess, I guess ammunition to tell your patient, like, hey, this is kind of what's the most up and current thing about what's going on with you. And these are the choices you have. And, you know, it, it help patients kind of formulate the decision that's going to be best for them. So, Yeah, man, I think that's great. And I think that's a great answer. Um, so I guess we'll go ahead and, and transition and kind of get into the topic of the day which is kind of like tips and tricks for, uh, you know, interns or other residents uh, that are coming to start take primary call, you know, things that can help you out, make it a little bit quicker when you're doing reduct reductions or, you know, just the little things that can make, you know, your right. call life easier. And um, I know every, like every program is a little bit different, you know, I guess on like the structure, mm-hmm. the amount of kind of calls that they take. So I guess kind of how would you, I guess we can you can give some a general background of her of how your I guess our residency program works just to give people like a little intro onto like how call is and then you know I guess we can kind of go from there. Okay, yeah, I got some notes taken now um, about call in general. Call is is, is going to always be one of your responsibilities. You know, even as a medical student, a junior resident, a senior resident, even you know a staff surgeon, you on your own, you're going to take call. That's just part of the job. Um, it is a rigorous time, but, you know, you learn a lot. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, junior residents learn their craft is doing call. Um, you know, there's different types of call. You know, number one, let's start off with the basics. You got primary call, you got secondary call. Primary call, that's the person who's, you know, the front line. That's the, the second-year resident or intern during the day. Um, but the third-year resident who's the one carrying the pager. Uh, they're, they're the ones that's being called for the consults. They see the consults. They make the plan for the, the, uh, for the patient. And then the secondary call is the the backup call person, which is likely more most cases is a um, a chief resident, someone who the primary call patient person signed out to, signed out meaning telling the you know the senior resident, hey, I got a you know ex patient with this type of injury, uh, I think this is the plan, and um, <laughs> they don't want to kind of you know solidify and say, hey, that's a good plan, um, and so that's the two type of calls, kind of you know. What we have here at Tulane, I think that's kind of mostly where um, at other places as well. Uh, primary call is usually front loaded, meaning like your interns, second years, again, and third years of the residents is usually, um, are they usually person, people who actually take primary call, and then the backup person is more the chief. Um, in our program, um, you know, we have a home call system. 
Um, and please stop me at any point in time if you have questions about any other. Um, you got an in-house call, you got a home call. In-house call is, you know, what larger programs have in which you have the resources in terms of the resident number in which you can keep someone in-house um, during the nighttime and that person is uh, take the call. And that's usually broken up in two, three-month blocks and you share it between, you know, the residents in your class. Um, they usually getting take care of all the consults in the nighttime and then in the morning time they have you know fractured comfort they sign everything out to the group that's going to come in during the day um a home call system is kind of what we have down here in which um you're not necessarily have to stay in house um but in returns uh, you have to come in if there's consults and stuff that needs to be seen or cases that needs to be done um you know on the downside of a home call as you guys know is you know you don't have dedicated post call time afterwards um, mm-hmm. given that, you know, you have time to go home during the night time and rest. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly, so sometimes, <laughs> yeah, supposedly <laughs> most, most times you do, sometimes you don't, you know, that's just kind of how it is, but you always tell everybody, yes. And you know, I didn't work no more than 24 hours, obviously. Um, um right. but with the call, right. But with the call system, um, especially at nighttime, if it's home call or even backup, um, and I guess top of uh, one of the topics we're going to talk about is those, you may, you may be the solo guy. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, we only had two interns below our class, unfortunately. And one of the interns was always on gen surgery and another intern was on orthopedic rotation. So share between my other two co-residents, you know, two thirds of the time you would have backup person with you. Uh, would not have, sorry, you would not have a backup person with you. One third of the time you would have an intern. So you have to learn how to do things by yourself. And, and you know, that's part of it. You know, even when you come out of residency and your staff somewhere, you may not have a resident who's going to see stuff and it just may be you so were, were you guys taking the doing call eight times uh eight times a month like how we do it now still when it was just you two right we we it depends on how many um residents in your class i mean if you have more obviously then you have less call days and then if you have um fewer residents you probably have more um for us yes it would be you know general eight call days um um we have a unique system down here where, you know, we have another resident program in town in which we split the trauma call with. So every other day we're on trauma call at the trauma hospital, but we're on call at the, at the hospital that, you know, where our resident program is out of every day. Um, and so you split those call shifts up from the 15 call shifts, which is half of them, 15 to 16 a month between the, the primary call people, which equates to about five or six, give or take. Um, and then the rest of the nights is going to be just on call, you know, just at our hospital. That makes sense. And so we, we were about eight a year, I mean, eight a month for the whole year. Okay. Yeah. So I know at our program, so I, I don't have a whole lot to add to this just because as interns, we don't take calls. We don't take any call during oh, our first lucky. year. Lucky. You yeah. Lucky yeah. You. <laughs> Yeah. You don't take any night call, correct? No night call, right. Now, we take everything during the day. Like, our seniors doesn't, they don't touch anything as far as, they don't, they, the only thing my seniors doing are OR. That's the only thing they're doing either in clinic or in the OR. Anything else that's happening, the intern takes care of that. Uh, but at 6 o'clock, we sign out, and either the second, third, or fourth, uh, I think it's really just second and third, not so much fourth year. Some, fourth year still doing some call, but not night call, but not much. Um, and we sign out to them, and they, they handle it from the nighttime. Uh, so, so that's kind of how our program is set up. And I think they tend to take about uh, somewhere between five and six call shifts a, a month, something like that. Because uh, 
it's, we we have like five per class. So yeah. while she spread mm-hmm. it out, it ends up being about five or six per class. I mean, for per month. Right. But uh, on that on that same tip, I know you say just kind of going into being that solo guy at night. Uh, you know, even though for our program, for everyone says first year is the worst year out of all of them, just because how things are kind of set up. But they do say the biggest change is uh, that second year when now you're by yourself. And you have to make those decisions. Like, should this patient stay? Can can this be something done outpatient? Uh, right. Is this emergency? You know, those different things. So I try to keep that in mind, even today, because uh, we pretty much see our consult solo. We, we're on our own when it comes to our consults. So I try to uh, kind of think to myself, like, all right, if this was my patient or if I was by myself, what would I do with this guy? Would I let it, is, is it, does this need surgery right now? Does this need surgery tomorrow? Could this be done outpatient? You know just to kind of prepare myself for next year when it, it, I really will have to make those decisions. All right. And that's, I think that's the, the tough part with the transition from being an intern. Um, even though we, we call yourself an intern these days, you know, you still do a lot of orthopedics with the new changes in which you can do six months orthopedics. So being a PGY two, which is your first year of your orthopedic residency, um, being on call by yourself is very stressful. And I think, you know, just being a more senior person now and, you know, having um, junior residents who actually call me and, and running consults, I think the biggest thing they struggle, struggle with initially is confidence, right? Yeah, Which is right. being a patient, trying to be efficient and self-sufficient. And in terms of uh, seeing the patient, seeing the x-rays, working everything up, formulated plan, getting all the materials ready that you would need uh, for when you call your chief, you pretty much everything will be done. And I think the confidence itself, it takes time. I mean, I mean, it, it takes time to, <laughs> to learn the things, but it comes with the reps. You know what I mean? Like if, if you, if you have enough reps and you see things of say one pathology multiple times, you should at that point in time kind of know what to do with it, you know? And so then, you know, by yourself, you know, it's nerve wracking, but you know, if everybody has done it and everybody would get through it. I think the best way that you can initially at this point in time as an intern, as a med student or, you know, uh, first year resident, second year resident is to observe those people who are ahead of you and learn and see what they do and ask questions as well and to kind of see, hey, why did you do this? And why did you call this person? Or why did you put this splint this way? And those little small things will actually kind of help you out through the process. And I got a little bit more details in terms of specifics we'll be talking about a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but but being solo is 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 tough. I mean, it's it's just you. You know what I mean. But yeah. even though you're the solo resident in the hospital in orthopedics, you still probably know more orthopedics than anybody else is in the hospital. So trust that you know your craft and you're going to do the best for people. Um, but again, that that all comes with time. All right, it comes with reps as well. Yeah, and and I think that's a perfect uh, segue to go ahead and transition into like the actual tips and tricks. Uh, I think a, a good way to kind of go about this is we can kind of speak about generally first and then kind of go into like ways to handle some upper extremity things, talk about like casting, you know, tips here and there, Okay. go to some lower extremity things. Uh, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the first questions I had, are there any times where you have something coming that you should just call a chief as soon as possible, like ASAP? You see this and you're like, I need to go ahead and call the chief and let him know about it, you know, without wasting time. Like, are there any of those situations where it's like, hey, you need to go ahead and call your chief right now? 
Right. I, I guess that that's a you know great question. Um, but I think mostly it depends on the type of program you have. Um, some programs, you know, some chiefs want to know about everything. Depends on who you own with. Um, when the stuff hit the door, so they kind of have a plan in place or know what to expect. Um, some places, you know, they want you to see the patient, make sure all the x-rays are done, uh, get a plan in place before you call anybody. Um, I think, you know, being there in New Orleans, that's kind of the, the latter is kind of where we uh, kind of where we stand in terms of how we want to do things and process like consoles. So at least for here, it's like when something comes in and hits the door, um, usually we want to make sure folks have eyes on it so they know what's going on. I mean, how many times, you know, have you got a page and say, hey, we've got this guy here had a laceration on the leg. Uh, we think they have an open fracture or whatever. And they call you and then, you know, you go off and you call everyone and, hey, we got an open fracture <laughs> downstairs. But once you get the x-rays, it's, it's not even a fracture. <laughs> you know, so yeah. so you always want to make sure you, you at least lay eyes on it and know what's going on. And make sure that the workup and the plan is like in place, um, at least before you start to make phone calls. Because you want to make sure you you have everything done. Again, uh, you don't want to be the guy that's you know calling everybody when nothing is there. Because you know it's more just at least for the residents' standpoint. The residents, I mean, I wouldn't personally care, but some of your staff may not want to know about any consult unless they are coming in to do surgery. If that makes sense, and then they probably prefer to be signed out the next morning with stuff. Yep, I totally understand it. Oh. And along with that, just to mention it, because I, it's something else that I hate, uh, not only like the laceration and you look and it's not even fractured or they come in as a trauma and they, you know, everybody talking about this obvious deformity, obvious deformity, they call it mm-hmm. uh, deformity. I'm like, and then they, and they, and they get the x-ray and I even look, and I come down and look at it, I'm like, uh, I don't really see it, but okay. Um, and then <laughs> right. the and I mean, <laughs> And that comes with the point I just made. Even though you may be the only person in the hospital that's doing orthopedics at night, you still know a lot more than some of the other stuff because this is kind of what you do and that's what you see, you know. Um, and so that's my recommendation. Always lay eyes on everything before you start making phone calls because, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, it's your responsibility anyway if you get a consult to see the consult and to know what's going on with that consult. So at some point in time, you got to go in and say it anyway, right? Exactly. Absolutely. So, um, I guess we can go ahead and get into it. So what what are some of the tips uh, of the trade, say for like maybe we'll say upper extremity injuries that you would have as far as being the solo uh, person going to see these consults as far as casting versus splinting and different things like that? Okay. Yeah, so I'm going to start from the top down, let's say with shoulder and elbow and then some forearm and then wrist stuff. Um, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, when you're on call and the consult list start to fill up and say you go from having two consults to three to five to six to seven or more, um, and you still send the first or second one, um, mm-hmm. you know, you will learn how to uh, quickly learn how to, to be more efficient and how to uh, get through uh, your consult list in a timely fashion because, you know, you can either take two hours to see everyone or you can take seven hours to see everyone. Um so with shoulders, I mean, probably the more common thing that you would see in, you know, orthopedics and in a trauma vein, which you would get called for, um, at least for our hospital, is either going to be fractures or dislocation. That's pretty much most things uh, you're going to see versus or a septic shoulder and those things. Um, so for, you know, if we could talk about shoulder reduction. So that's probably the one that's going to uh, take the most innovation for, for you, I guess, um, in terms of ha- having to do something in the, in the trauma bay. And um, 
And so shoulder reductions itself can be tough. Um, so what I recommend for any medical student, intern, junior resident, uh, if you get a consult about a shoulder that's dislocated, the first question you need to ask is uh, what x-rays has been done and then make sure that all the appropriate x-rays have been done. Uh, so you have to first thing you look at the x-rays itself. You know, some women just get an a APV or maybe a scap wine and calling for a shoulder dislocation. You know, to the untrained eye, maybe it look out, but it may not be. So, you know, I'd recommend everyone to make sure that the appropriate films are done, which are APs, um, axillaries, uh, uh, scap-wide views. If, you know, patient refuses to use the arm, what's another type of x-ray that you can get that, you know, calls minimum uh, guess manipulation of the extremity. It's a belt of deal. And, you know, one of the hospitals you work at, the x-ray technicians always push back about touching extremities with fractures or dislocations. So we always can tell them, hey, just get a full view if you can't manipulate the arm to get axillary. Right. And um, and also get full length films of the extremity that's involved in terms of the joint above and joint below. So, you know, always get your hemofilms and elbow films. And then if you get those x-rays and the shoulders out, um, that's kind of what you're going to go with. Usually some ED departments take care of it. Some of them don't. I mean, that's kind of how it is. Um, I know for our philosophy down here is that they call us for a shoulder dislocation, then you call on us to do it. Sometimes you go in and you're like, well, can we give it a try and have you guys stand by just to me the point right. through the direction? No, you called us to do this. We do. We're going to do this shoulder dislocation. Right. Um, and so, Observe your, your senior resident and see how they set the room up in terms of they do a shoulder dislocation or reduction. Um, it's kind of two ways I do it. I, I do, I can do the shoulder dislocation when it's just me, and I can do one if I have like an intern or, or second year to show them kind of how to do it if you have another set of hands. Um, so you will be the team member in the ED directing everyone. It's going to be like you're the, the pilot that's flying the plane. You know, whatever you say, that's what they should do. All right. Um, <laughs> And always ask questions like to your senior resident, why you do this? Why you move the bed this way? Why you do this thing? So when I come in, a patient got a shoulder dislocation, which the ED can't reduce. Um, first thing that you're going to have to think about is if I'm going to do it with a person there and show them how to do it, if you have two hands to help out, you know, I start moving everything out of the way. You know, I move the bed to the side of the room in which we can work on the, give us more space to work um, in terms of like, say, just the right shoulder, move the bed to the left side of the room. So we can stand on the right side. Um, uh, you have to think about what medications you're going to have to give, to sedate them, not sedate them. Are you going to do intra-articular block? Are you going to give them PO medications? Um, and so <laughs> tips with that is if, if you're doing it with someone else, the, you know, the, the standard method, what we used to call back in the day, or in my med school, which was the Captain Morgan, whatever you call it, when you put your, somebody pulling a sheet, the patient one way, and somebody else is pulling another way. <laughs> uh, that's that's good. That's cool. I normally sedate the patient for that, so it doesn't seem as traumatic to them, or um, give them some medication so they won't remember a lot of it. Even though it's you know it's not gory, it's just you know multiple big men pulling on you to try to get your shoulder reduced. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are a couple of methods that you know um, I use myself to to help with like close reductions uh, when I'm by myself two methods you know you want to look it up um there are um two articles that you know that's written about them one of them is called the the ferris method f-a-r-e-s um it's if you by yourself um it's just you know uh 
I believe it's a recent paper back in August of 2018 out of Lebanon that described this method in which they don't even give paper, paper, people medication to do it. Uh, it's more of just you walking a patient through the steps of reducing the shoulder. Um, Say so the left shoulder, they land prone, you land flat. You take the hand, um, you, you spin the elbow um, all the way, and then you point the hand neutrally. All right. So while you're giving handshakes and talking to them, like, hey, it's going to be okay. I know this is a bad traumatic event for you, but we're going to get this shoulder in. You passively um, abducting the shoulder um, all the way up to about 90 degrees. Um, you do some vertical oscillations to kind of, you know, kind of loosen them up a little bit and hopefully try to unhinge it. And then usually while you pull in traction and abducting it with external rotation on the shoulder with the vertical oscillation, you should feel it self-reduced. And then once the self reduces anywhere between 90 to about 120 degrees abduction, you internally rotate and you just bring it on back to the side. Um, the other method I use is um, in which I don't have to do medication. This is the one I use on the sideline. I lay a kid flat up prone on a bench. Um, <laughs> if the involved shoulder uh, adducted uh, past, you know, the side in which they're pretty much the elbow was like almost midline. Um, I externally rotate the, the, the upper extremity and I usually unhinge it. Um, if it's anterior and through this location, I usually unhinge it. And then as I bring it back to like kind of that same motion, the abduction, internal rotation, that usually reduces as well. So those kind of two methods that you can use that doesn't require medication, patient usually tolerate it well and you can actually get it reduced and then be fine. But the caveat is that it's the, 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 usually that dislocation mostly is anterior and inferior. So if you have a superior dislocation um, or inferior dislocation, you can manipulate the humeral head to make it a bent anterior location. Then you can use that technique to do it. Posterior right. dislocation are completely different. Those are <laughs> out of the school potential. If you get one of those, usually you just kind of pull traction with that and, um, and that kind of reduces and, reduces it. And you said uh, the fairest. I think is that like the, the fast, reliable, and safe. I think I, I think I read about that. Um, and you said exactly. that one, you hold you hold their wrist and gentle traction, and you kind of oscillate the um, the outstretched arm while abducting. Correct. So usually I send the elbow kind of right at the maybe ten degrees abduction from the side, have them land flat. Um, wrist is at neutral, meaning kind of thumb is kind of pointing like straight not straight up in the air but you know neutral for the neutral position and as you pull on traction you take them to abduction and once you get around about 80 90 degrees you start doing like vertical oscillations like almost like a handshake you just start shaking the arm um and then once you start to get roughly about 80 90 degrees you externally rotate the the wrist which is usually unhinges it if it's stuck say if it has an impact the hill facts whatever that unhinges the the hip or head i guess the glenoid and you know, as you externally rotating it, still pulling traction, and then occasionally doing your vertical oscillation, that should you should feel the, the shoulder reduce at that point. Um, you, sometimes you may have to abduct it past 90 degrees from when they land prone. And then once it abducts, that's when you externally rotate it, bring them back to, to the side, and then whatever your facility or your, your residency program, you put them at adduction, pillow swings. We, we make our pillow swings sometimes. And, um, and so that's, that's a really good method to use. It works. I haven't had one not to work. Okay, I'm about to look that one up. I've never, uh, I've never seen that one, but I've also haven't gotten a lot of experience. Say of, of of these injuries happening was, like you say, pretty much in non-traumatic, uh, or I guess you could say right. I haven't seen like with sports 
injuries and different things like that. Like, what would you do on the sideline for this type of thing? And so that's good to know. I'm going to have to look that up and yeah, kind of see how that works. Now, if, if you are on a, on a football field and shoulder, see a dislocated shoulder, and it's obvious, you know, they held, they hold an arm in an abnormal position that doesn't look right. Um, I usually try to calm everything down. I take the patient, the, the player, off the field and take them in the locker room. That's when I reduces it. I don't want to do it on the field, on the sideline. Everybody's looking at you. The parents are crying and those things. You know, <laughs> calm the situation down, move the kid in the locker room, get the shoulder back in, and um, and then kind of go from there and make sure they come in and follow up afterwards. Um, I have had okay. shoulders not reduce, not using that method, but, you know, it takes the right patient. You got to, it just takes a patient if he's not hysterical, who you can, you know, talk through uh, while you're doing the process. But, you know, I've had some in which you have to sedate them and get them in, and I have some that you couldn't get in. And so the irreducible shoulder, if you want to, guys want to jump in that, we can. You gave it two attempts and, and then reduced. So Let's do it. I always tell everybody, especially junior resident, to um, give it two attempts before calling someone, all right? Um, okay. But in an interim, for you calling someone, you know, you always need to do a few things if you can't get a shoulder reduced. The first thing you should do is obviously is go back and look at the x-rays again um, to make sure that the humor head, say, if it's not impacted, in which you cannot hinge it. Is there another fraction which you pull it through? And that's the reason why I can't reduce. Um, and then, or maybe the humor head you thought was anterior is now, you know, inferior or is it inferior now is like anterior superiorly. There's always something that's there that's, that's you are not realizing that's keeping you from getting the shoulder head. And so if you try it twice without any medication, sedate the patient, ask for propofol. I know everyone is probably scared of it, but propofol for me is, you know, with the, you know, the right, you know, um, team that's monitoring everything, that's the one that really gets people sleepy enough in which you can get them relaxed. So you really can give the shoulder a good try to get it in. All right. And then I say try it again at that point. And then at that point in time, you can't get it reduced, given that's not a fracture, given that's not all these other things. That's when you call your chief and get, get them involved. So. Absolutely. I like that. That's a, I think that's a good way to do it. I always try to give it at least two good goes at it. Um, also, mm -hmm. this next one is something I haven't had a whole lot of experience in. Um, what, what are some of your tips for, say, the elbow dislocations when you have to reduce that? Um, so elbows are a little bit easier to me with uh, compared to shoulders. Um, elbows, you know, obviously, you know, it's the same process, that, the same steps that you got to go through. Um, uh, someone comes in with obvious, and these are usually, you see obvious deformities. So <laughs> the ED call, you say they got an obvious deformity elbow, you already know it's going to be a dislocation. <laughs> um, right. So usually the big thing to look for in x-rays is make sure you always get the joint above or below. Make sure you're not missing anything. So get elbow all the way down to wrist. Um, they are mostly commonly associated with fractures, if it's fractures in involving the, the ulna or the radial head. So, so some of those things will kind of help direct you what you do. So uh, for elbows, you, you need to, you know, focus on what direction is the dislocation, if it's medial, if it's lateral, if it's posterior. Uh, sometimes it can be posterior, medial, posterior, lateral. <clears throat> to to, to re reduce those, you know, I always tell it to every junior resident. Elbow dislocations are fairly easier to reduce compared to other joints, but make sure you always have a C-arm or mini-C in the room um, to take live x-rays only because you always want to make sure that the joint is concentrated on the lateral view uh, when it gets reduced. And, but the most important thing is while you're reducing it, 
is to make sure you, you, you see what angles uh, in terms of degrees of rotation that the elbow is stable. All right. Um, usually with that one is, you know, you just put one hand, I flex the elbow up to 90, um, put one hand on the humerus, and then I just literally pull traction. In most cases, that reduces. Um, sometimes they can be unstable in flexion. They can be unstable in extension. So you, that's what the thoracoscopy helps out to see when does the joint come out. And then you just splint the patient in a, a stable position. All right. Always range um, the elbow and document the range of motions and also document what, what degrees that it pops out. Um, in terms of setting everything up, usually most people tolerate this pretty well with just an intra-articular block um, or sedation if, if needed, only because, you know, you're going to be doing so much and taking those x-rays as well. Mm. And so really quick, when you, when you, you said you flex to about 90 degrees uh, when you're about mm-hmm. before you pull traction? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I remember I was reading somewhere, maybe, maybe I got it wrong, but um, it was like if you extend, well, I guess if, if it was already flexed, but you like extend to allow like the coronoid uh, pro- to like clear the coronoid from the um, from the uh, acromion, from the distal part of the from the distal part of the humerus. Um, but yours is you typically no, mostly start at 45, pull just kind of X to attraction. And then you test the range of motion and you confirm with fluoroscopy. Well, right. Sorry. So, um, great question. I, I should be more clear. I start traction when I start flexing probably like 10 degrees and then I would bend it up to about 90. And sometimes you reduce, most cases you reduce it before you get up to 90 degrees. So you're right. So you want to pull actual traction before you get up 90 degrees to clear it. But usually once you get up to 90 degrees, it is normally, it should be reduced at that point. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot, a lot of uh, uh, elbow dislocations. And I think there's probably been two that have come around since I've been, you know, when I'm actually on the ortho service. But for whatever mm-hmm. reason, by the time I get to the, the ED, someone's already reduced it. Like the other intern might have already reduced it or, uh, or either it came in at night and I wasn't there. So I haven't actually gotten to see this maneuver yet. But, uh, it is something I, I'm really hoping to get some uh, some experience with before next year. So right. when it comes in, I, I'm not looking too lost. So it's actually good to hear your technique for sure. Yeah, so, and again, always um, pay close attention with your, your, your senior residents and how they do things. Because, you know, every center and every place do things a little bit different, all right? The most important thing with elbow dislocation is, is I'm going to ask you this one, Cody. After you get everything reduced, you need to do a uh, you mean as far as getting like post-op imaging? Yeah, post-op imaging. But and before you get the images, they need right, and uh, you get a range of motion for sure. But you always got to put them in a splint. In a splint, oh, all right, because yeah. <laughs> they easily can pop out. They start waking up and they move it, or they try to, you know, stand or flex, and it pops right back out again. And always make sure, like, if the AED calling you, hey, we had this guy to come in with a. Uh, elbow dislocation. Uh, we reduced it before we call you guys. Um, what do you guys want to follow up? Or when do you want to follow up? Next question you should ask is how's the x-rays is it reduced? And the second question is, did you guys put them in a splint already? There's been multiple times or sometimes where they say, no, well, we haven't splinted them yet. And then they go back and get repeat x-rays and they're already out again. So splint before the patient is waking up and splint them in, in, a, in an unstable position in which it's not going to shift out. Now, now for and, some things... Oh, now I was gonna say I've, I've read some things where um, you'll put them, some people will put them in like a hinged elbow brace after they reduce it. Have you seen that used as much, or do you just typically? Right, and, and, 
Correct. If it's like a just a, a simple elbow dislocation without a fracture, sometimes you can just put them right into a a um, hinge elbow brace and to get them moving. Um, because the longer you split in the stiff of the elbow, it's going to get. Um, but you know, traditionally for our institution, we split um, first and then have them and see them within a week, and then that's when we transition them to the elbow brace, mostly for comfort. Because if it's going to hurt, then they likely won't move it. Um, and so we put them in a splint to keep them from moving it. All right. Um, yeah. In the tough ones in which you splint and then you check x-rays and they already, you know, pop out again or, or dislocate or sublux because it's still unstable. Sometimes you have to put those in a long arm cast that's a little bit more uh, stable than just a splint. All right. Yeah. So that's another little, little pointer for you. Mm, nice. Okay. Um, yeah, that's actually, that's, that's gold. I think all those tips are pretty gold to have, but, uh, I mean, I'm, and I'm glad you got got Cody straight on, on what to do there too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, he knows. Trust me, he knows. They don't call with us. Like he, he knows what's the, the best thing because the, you know the biggest thing is you want to just make sure these are the questions that your chiefs and staff is going to ask the next morning. What was the range of motion? When did it pop out? How did you split them? Let me see your post out splint or post production film. Sorry. Um, so these are going to be the things that you have to think about, you know, and, and part of how I tackle is like when I saw consults, what all that I need to see and do uh, <laughs> to keep people from asking questions. <laughs> all right. And so right. do as much as you can. And there's nothing wrong with doing more than you need to um, just to make sure that you cover everything. Absolutely. This next one here is probably something, I mean, it's probably one of the mo- most common uh you know, reductions that we have to do in the ED. What, what are some of your techniques for the distal radius uh, fractures that you that you see in the ED? Yeah, that's so that's, I've got distal radius reductions. I mean, that's my number one upper extremity, upper extremity code, I guess, when we log out cases. Um, you're going to get a lot of them. Um, they're going to come with time. I still remember the first one I did. It probably took me about an hour and 10 minutes to, you know, to reduce and cast, uh, I got them doing them like, a, you know, now I do them every 10, like 10 to 15 minutes. And, you know, so um, that's what comes with time. Just three is that's, that's going to be your arch nemesis as a, as an intern, because you know, when that comes in, it's going to take you a while to do it. Um, I teach everyone to do these reductions. That's like, if you're doing them by yourself, um, our Tulane is a, is a, in New Orleans where we train, it's a place where close reduction for like some of our trauma staff, they want you always to attempt that first because, you know, when you take your board exams, they're not going to want to see you, you know, fix all of them. They want to see that you attempt close reduction. So reducing this radius fracture is going to be part of your your repertoire of uh, techniques that you're going to have to at least, you know, perfect, you know, as a resident. Um, and so the way I do them is um, I, I, I do, number one, pain control. I always do, uh, intract well, sorry, uh, 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 hematoma block, which I introduced normal medication to the fracture site itself. Um, I do a mix of um, lidocaine and marcaine. Lidocaine, you know, as you know, it, it, it works well, but they're only going to give them two, three hours of pain relief. The marcaine is what's going to give them pain relief at the fracture site uh, for, for several hours. So you can either reduce them cast or you can reduce them split. And the way I reduce them is uh, I use the finger traps or a curl roll, which I just hang. Um, just for like a, your standard college fracture, I just hang them by the thumb, get a little older deviation of some traction. I put some weight around the arm. Easy. You can use the, the bean bags or um, the poor man's way of what we do. We, we take some stock and neck. Uh, we put 
two uh, or four bottles out of one liter saline. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about, you know, three, four feet long. And we put two on each side and we just hang around the arm. And that applies some traction, general traction. And then you just hang them up. You hang them up. Sometimes it takes 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes 11 minutes to get the fracture uh, almost, you know, mostly reduced. All right. Um, and then once you do that, then you just do your technique and then you, you'd be done with it. But the, the, the good thing is like, if you have two or three dysphoreas that's hanging around, once you hang some one patient up, give them 10 minutes or 12 minutes to, to fully relax the, the point and the point that the fracture is almost reduced, you can go do hematoma blocks and hang the rest, the rest of them as well. So it's going to be like a little, you know, like a, a simulator. And, um, right. We we cast ours, and so we we place we can either put them in a splint or put them in long limb cast. Cast is, makes it a little bit more rigid. You just got to make sure you don't make it too tight. And uh, the way I do it, I do it in two stages. I, I do the upper part first, which is like from the armpit to a little bit distal to the elbow. I roll that out with plaster. I mold it, and then um, once that dries, I, I put the weight back on so I can stretch them out a little bit more. And then I do the the distal portion in which I can do my reduction removal maneuver after I, I roll it and usually that holds pretty well once you get done. Um, you can either close reduce or you can splint. Splint's a little bit easier. Just put them in a sugar tone after you do it. And I still use the same method, which is hanging. I hang by the thumb if it's colleagues or if it's um, a bowl of shear. Usually I just hang it by the, the uh, middle ring finger and that usually pulls a little bit of traction. I just do a gentle mole and extension uh, to keep it there. So with uh with this technique you can you can you can do it by yourself um obviously if you have you know intern someone with you that'd be great because someone can just can hold traction on the arm while you pull it uh but it's a little bit more gentler for the patient just have them hanging versus you know you have someone just manipulating the arm and they still in the crunch filling and all those things that's the stuff that people's gonna remember uh, patients gonna remember so yeah and and you say that you so you before you even do the reduction you go ahead and cast like from mid arm to like to mid forearm, and then you do the reduction and finish the cast. Is that right? Well, I, yes, I cast, I cast from the I do the, the proximal portion of it. I cast from the armpit to the elbow. Some people does the opposite, in which they they cast from the, the MCPs probably to you know just distal to the elbow. They do that first, then get the mold, and then finish it. The only reason I like doing the top part is I can do the top part and have that dry a little bit. Then I can put the weight back on and have the weight assist me with the reduction so I don't have to pull too much traction. That makes sense. Because I'm, I'm doing it as I'm doing it by myself. Right. So I let the weight from the weights that I put on from the weight down the sandbag to distract the fracture a little bit more. Um, and then I do my roll. And, and then I do the mold. Because, if, you know, you take the weight off, the fracture's just going to displace again. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I wanted to put the weight back on and distract it and keep it reasonably, you know, close to being where it is. And then I just do the the, the mold um, um, once I get the plaster rolled on for the distal segment of it. Mm, right. So a couple questions on that. And I know mm-hmm. it's going to be different on which program you're at. But right. what's the thought process behind going immediately to the cast versus sugar tongue first? And also, are you guys using a like a um, a C arm when you guys do this? Because also, I was just kind of thinking about it. Like, what if you know it's not as well reduced as you thought, but you already have it in a cast? So, how that kind of looks? Right. So that's that's a phenomenal point, uh, Seth. So, 
passing versus splinting is, you know, is, is, is institutional. So our uh, senior trauma surgeon always want us to, to try to cast if we can, because um, you try to not treat most of them if you can. Uh, obviously, that's some that you can't. Um, the sugar tone, um, you know, I will use a sugar tone if the patient is really swollen or some of my other staff who's on call and say just, just place in a sugar tone versus uh, cast it. You're still going to have to reduce it. C-arm itself is a tool that I recommend. I don't care if you reduce in a finger to reducing a distal radius to an ankle, whatever, or a tibial shaft fracture. C-arm is going to be your best friend as a junior resident because you don't know how it feels yet to have a decent reduction, okay? Um, once I was a PGY-3 or now a 4, you know, I don't use a, a C-arm when I do the reduction because I just can look at the fracture and say this is how it's going to be reduced and I just do it. Um, but you're right, but having a C-arm on board can help you with, you know, either over-reducing it or under-reducing it in terms of, you know, pushing the, you know, the piece to volar versus not, not enough reduction. That's going to help you with that because the worst part is, you was lazy and you didn't use the arm and your right fits and you do a distal radius reduction you get x-rays and the reduction is nowhere near where it should be and you got to take it off and you got to do everything else again right. so c-arm does help with that all right so that's a great question absolutely i i um at at, at our program like we pretty i mean i really don't even know where the c-arm is at our program we we don't use it uh, <laughs> uh, like, really, I, if, if we had to have it i wouldn't even know where to start to go and get it from so at the Children's Hospital, we use the C-arm at the Children's mm-hmm. Hospital. There are a whole lot more, you know, for, for good reason with the open prices and everything. There's a whole lot more going on with their reductions, and they want us to be more uh, anatomic with our reductions, so they have it right there. And, you know, every every reduction has a C-arm in the room, and it's very helpful. Mm-hmm. It's actually great. But, um, yeah, for our adults and, the regular, like, our general hospitals, uh, don't have a C arm at all, and like, and with that being said, there's been plenty of times I had to take my splint down, and I had to redo this uh, reduction because I mean it still needs just a little bit more push over to get the the bowler tip right or something mm-hmm. like that. Reduction just not quite right. perfect. When this is it, it could be one that could possibly be non operative if we if we get it right. So uh, that is right. it's, it's a bit of a downside. Mm-hmm. It's good and bad to and- it, but. You know, right, and, and there's ways to get around it. I mean, some, if you guys have digital x ray, then I will have the x ray technician at bedside too. If, it's, if, if they are willing to do it, to take a couple pictures to make sure that it looks great before you commit to it. Um, but, um, but you're right, the, the C arm does assist with a lot of that. And for kids, you know, obviously you want it to be, you know, as perfect as possible. But also with kids, is um, you know, usually they are sedating kids for you to do it. Um, you don't want to sedate right. twice. Um, kids are less tolerable with some of the mani- manipulation stuff than an adult and pull out a big needle to try to do a hematoma block on a kid, you know, they're going to freak out. So that's probably the reason why they want it there. So to make sure that you get it right the first time, you know, how to traumatize the kid and do it multiple times or give them more sedation that they shouldn't need. And, and then Jay, weren't, aren't, isn't uh, the people that wrote the, the recent paper talking about the utility and the effectiveness of the C-arm and distal radius fractures, aren't those your chiefs that wrote that paper? Yeah, those are my current chiefs. I think I'm. They might have been threes and fours at the time when they wrote that that paper, but they are now my chief. Yeah. Oh man, they tell you. I'm not familiar. What, what did the paper say? That is, it's not. 
you yeah. couldn't use it. As, what was yeah. recommend, yeah. recommendation? Yeah. The the paper uh, it was just looking at the effectiveness of using a C arm versus not using a C arm and distal radius fractures, and uh, they, mm-hmm. they didn't see any any like major difference as far as using a C arm and not using a C arm as far as adult distal radius fractures were concerned. Uh, so okay. They, yeah, that's that was kind of their the conclusion. And who was doing the who was doing the reductions? Was it like the junior residents or more senior residents or staff? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was all the residents. So it was the junior residents, and I think they had some threes and fours in there. I don't know. I, I don't remember how many uh, fives that were doing the reductions, but I know there were at least threes, and of course, you know, the, the junior residents doing the reductions. And they uh, they mm-hmm. put in there like the the perceived difficulty of the reduction. You know, they noted all that stuff in there. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting paper. I'm going to check it out uh, for sure. Um, you know, I'm still going to recommend everybody, especially who's just starting off, to take a few pictures if you can, just to make sure that that your technique, that's what you're doing, is actually you know is effective with the reduction. Because um, you don't you don't know which way to pull, how much volar tip that you need to be pushing, is your mole at the right location, those things like that. That all kind of helps with you kind of get in the feel for it. And then you're right, you know, the more senior you get, once you have that feel down, then I think the utility to, of using a senior arm is probably a lot less than it is early on. But early on, it's all about you, you're now starting to make your craft. And the only, the only way you can make it is you have to understand, you know, what maneuvers you need to do to reduce any particular fracture. Right. right? Yeah, Absolutely. That's, and um, so we, we just so have kind of, a couple. Go ahead, go ahead, Jay. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, just to kind of close out on the upper extremity, I wanted to also mm-hmm. see if you can give us whatever tips you may have on INDs of, say, the finger or, or you know, say at our hospital, we have a lot of uh, IV drug users, so we get a lot of abscesses in the forearm and different things like that. Uh, any tips you have for that? And also, uh, like finger amputations. Uh, just like how, how you kind of go about that being efficient as possible when you're a solo guy. Yeah. Those things, man, I'm, I'm telling you a hand call at the trauma centers are, are brutal nationwide. Um, you got to do it. And, um, I mean, that's all the way you're going to learn how to take care of some of this stuff and, um, finger pus that we call it and hand pus and injuries and stuff that requires amputation. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's tough stuff. I mean, you're doing it in an ED setting in which, you know, it's not a formal sterile oper- operating room in which you, you can control everything, you know. You got to be safe as possible to protect yourself. So eyewear, um, gowns, all those things, that's what I kind of recommend start off with. Um, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, finger pus is finger pus. I mean, <laughs> if you see a pocket of pus, cut it, drain it. Yeah. Leave it open, let it drain, pack it, those things. I mean, those are kind of the steps to do it. Um, the only thing I can kind of recommend with is like, you know, making sure someone have a adequate analgesia for it. Um, usually, um, unfortunately, I mean, folks who, you know, use, um, some reason why they, a lot of them don't like needles with somebody else stick them, you know? And, um, so you have to make sure they're, they're comfortable as possible and make sure their pain control is, 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 um, adequate as well. Um, uh, cause usually they have a little bit more tolerance than someone who's naive in terms of, uh, pain control so i usually try to give it a little bit more um in terms of um medication to make sure that they are tolerable for it uh, i mean it's a horrible experience no matter who they are uh it can be a fisherman who got stuck by a catfish that i've seen before or you know i'd be drug user i mean it's, it's a traumatic experience for somebody to to perform a ind ind is someone that doesn't know who's listening is you know you, you take you numb up the the digit 
you take a, a scalpel, a blade, uh, you, you cut the skin down to where the infection is, and you have to sometimes use other instruments to spread the tissue to kind of get all of the pus out um, in terms of the infection in order for your body or you know, the antibodies to work. Um, antibiotics doesn't penetrate, penetrate abscesses. Uh, there's not a blood flow inside of them. So the best way to get rid of access, that everybody knows, is the, the, the gold standard way is actually to remove it. And so in order to remove it, especially for hands, uh, you can do a dead bedside in the ED. Um, I usually do a, uh, I used to do a, a digital block um, while knocking out the digital nerve on both the radio on the side of the digit. Um, so it'd be two sticks, but I'm rotated with the hand team here in New Orleans on um, the way they do the digital blocks, they pretty much palpate the the uh, what I call head uh, of the digit, and usually if you stick there and you inflate there uh, or, or introduce lidocaine or anomaly medicine at that point, it knocks out the entire digit because it necessitates the nerve before it splits. And so that's one stick versus two sticks. What I used to do. Uh, I'm sorry, so that's kind of one. Where was that? At? You said it was the. Uh... Right. So say if I have to numb, um, um, someone has abscess on the index finger. You palpate okay. the, uh, the metacarpal head of the index finger. Okay. Um, the digital nerve comes up and then, you know, it splits on the radial side and on the side, right? But if you knock it out right there before it splits, which is right about the, the metacarpal head, uh, okay. then you don't have just one stick versus two sticks to knock it out. And so they would get some numbness on that entire finger, but probably like the, the radial side of the, the middle finger as well, well a little bit because it splits and goes that way. Um, and so I just palpate the radial head, and then I just, I mean, I take 20 cc's, and I fill it up in that spot. <laughs> and that usually knocks out the entire digit, both dorsal and, and, and um, uh, volar as well. And are you making the, are you putting the, the I guess, lidocaine, are you doing that volarly or? Sorry, it's going to be volar, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, I've I've done that before too. Yeah. Okay. I'll see you. So that's one thing. They hate it. I mean, they scream this and stuff, but it's better than filling it up on doing two sticks. Again, you try to minimize the amount of trauma for someone. And for amputations, unfortunately, I mean, you have to do them in the ED. Uh, some people have injuries and accidents, and you know, New Orleans is an interesting place. You get people who stick their hand and are running lawnmower to try to remove some of the grass that's stuck in there and you got fireworks and people blow their hands off and uh, <laughs> fingers off and those things and car accidents and people are going butchers who cut the thing off. We, we, you know, we just run your back to, you know, say it was at the, the tip of, we just run your back to, you can close it. I mean, that's the best thing I can recommend. It's like you need soft tissue coverage to close the distal aspect of the amputation site. So, you know, sometimes you have to take it back as much as you can to make sure that you have enough tissue to get it closed. Yeah, those uh, finger amputations, man, they can really uh, put a damper on your day when you have uh, a couple consults and then someone oh. tell you finger amp in there. <laughs> I'm telling you, you get the, you know, I'm I'm bad that I control the ED board, you know, before I, I'm on call, before I go to lay my head down and get some sleep for a little bit. You know, I, I see the I see the hand consults, and I look at the x-rays for anything. I'm telling you, you see one that's, you know, you see obvious deformity and soft tissue damage and debris everywhere you know you're going to be in the hospital for a couple hours and for the significant ones we, we try to take it back to the operating room obviously um um and especially if you have like a hand snap that's on um but usually a lot of these things can be done in the ed absolutely but luckily uh 
our fellows, we have some hand fellows and they are very, um, they take a lot more, they, they try to do a lot of revascularization, I think a lot more than some other people would, but it takes a little work mm-hmm. off of me. And if you, you just have to kind of lay out all the details to the, the patient and let them know that sometimes it's a long process. Uh, but if right. sometimes they want to save their finger and sometimes they're like, Hey man, get this thing off of me. I don't want to deal with all that. And you know, just give them right. an option. We take, we, we, yeah, and then, that, take a to the OR. Yeah, and that's absolutely correct. It's about the clientele too. I mean, if you have a, you know, unfortunate young female who's in a car accident and, you know, got pretty nails, I mean, they're going to want to save it more so than a carpenter who was, you know, working out at his wood shop and tip off, took off the tip of his finger. You're like, yeah, just cut it back, you know, and they go back working within a week. <laughs> So, absolutely, and this this was a good talk. I'm really I'm really enjoying this one. I I think I'm I'm liking how much time we're spending on everything because uh, it's mm-hmm. actually something it's very helpful. I think we're gonna break this up into two parts so that our listeners can kind of just listen into upper extremity, and we'll have a separate episode uh, for lower extremity. We always give our our speakers a way to uh, either give their social handles or or their email address, something that our listeners can reach back to you if, if you would like. Uh, is there any, I don't know, social media or something like that that you would like to put on air for, for our listeners? Oh, sure. Yes. My, my Instagram, um, I'm, I'm trust me, I'm, I'm brand new. I'm a rookie with it. So I'm just now starting to explore the social media aspect of it is, um, is DW Johnson 100. Uh, so you can shoot me a message on there or um, email addresses. It's easy is Dr. Donovan Johnson, MD at gmail.com. Uh, someone recommended me to have a basic email address like that, just in case for, for um, anybody want to reach out to me. So those two ways is probably the quickest and easiest way. Um, I usually respond within, you know, within a half hour or so from those two. Guys, thank you so much for listening to that episode of nailed it orthopedic podcast with one of my chief residents, Dr. Johnson, otherwise known as DJ. Now, again, guys, if you are a lower-level resident, you know, first year, second year, or even if you're a fourth-year student just matched, you know, this episode was uh, it had a lot of good tips and tricks. I hope you guys took some notes. I was actually just re-listening to this, editing it, and I was like, man, this actually had a, a lot of good, good information here. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for part two where we talk about some lower extremity tips, which is also a really great episode. Um, guys, you know, follow us, subscribe, uh, follow us on Instagram at nail it ortho. Uh, of course go and please, you know, leave us five star ratings. If that's what you feel like this deserves, um, guys until next time.